You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello everyone, great to have your company and welcome to episode 37 of The Myth Pilgrim, uh, exploring Robin Hood as a surprising Christ archetype. Now this will be an interesting journey for us um, because when it comes to you know, memorable or popular, well-known um, myths and legends of the English-speaking world, probably I would say King Arthur, like the Arthurian legends and Robin Hood, uh, would be the two most well-known and popular and celebrated and you know, when we bring in the Christian lens, we can often say, oh, King Arthur, he, he's very much a Christ figure. You know, he's a king, he's noble, he's virtuous, you know, he, there's equality, you know, all the knights sitting around the round table together as one with them. Um, so he, he's definitely a Christ figure, but, but very few of us would consider Robin Hood um, to capture anything Christ-like at all, because after all, he's a rebel, right? A thief, you know, he steals from the rich to give to the poor, and that's not very virtuous, right? Well, you'll be surprised, and I hope today's episode will open your eyes a little bit, because... We might just be delighted, <laughs> surprised at how much Robin Hood actually reveals and reminds us of a, a dimension of how people of Jesus' time would have perceived him, whether you're a political leader from Rome or one of the scribes and Pharisees. What will be particularly interesting is that I think most of us who know the story of Robin Hood, and there have been many versions and books about this guy, you know, from animated versions to you know, um, and movie versions like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is one I grew up with. That's how I first knew the story, starring Kevin Costner and Severus Snape, <laughs> a.k.a. Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, regardless of what version you grew up with, what's interesting is that most of us watch these stories assuming he's the good guy, right? Like, as he's the protagonist. He's the one on the side of the poor and fights against the tyranny and oppression and unfair taxes and, you know, phony kings and whatever it is. So we already sort of have a way in to um, not be scandalized when I present Jesus as the maverick, as the outlaw, as the one, the troublemaker, the one that didn't fit in. Now, in terms of the origin of Robin Hood, um, like many legends, you know, there's great kind of scholarly debate about whether he was a historical person or kind of a legendary sort of figure where it's sort of half historical, half legendary, or totally made up in some bard's uh, imagination. What we do know is that this figure became popular in stories and in songs and poems around uh, the 13th century. But in terms of which details have captured the imagination of the English people, um, the following would be true. So Robin Hood in his time was a very famous and well-known um, bowsman. So he was very good with the bow and arrow, a very keen marksman. And like many other English yeomen or peasants, um, he was sent off to fight in the Crusades. Um, upon returning, though, to his land, to England, um, the rightful king, King Richard the Lionheart, was still off um, leading another crusade. So in place of him was Prince John, who is sort of like a caretaker king, who was a bit dodgy and was money-grubbing and corrupt and everything. And to fund his own selfish purposes, he taxed the country like there was no tomorrow and put anyone who resisted um, into prison. So um, Robin Hood sort of becomes famous by leading a bunch of his followers, you know, kind of the merry men, um, in rebellion against Prince John. And 
and they would lay ambushes to those、um, who were on Prince John's side. So the rich, the famous, the bureaucratic,、um, even rich clergymen,、um, rich, you know, corrupted church members, they would hold little raids and ambushes and steal from the rich、um, in order to nurture and care for the poor, whether it's financially or or through providing food. So even though King John was very much aware of this Robin Hood figure、um, and was he was very much wanted,、um, he, uh, Robin and his followers were very hard to catch, and famously made their hideout hidden in、um, Sherwood Forest. And then along the way,、um, other famous iconic characters like、um, Robin Hood's right hand men, Little John and Will Scarlet. And then there's always Friar Tuck, who's the the big, jolly, slightly overweight Franciscan friar, who himself was quite disillusioned with church corruption and was quite favourable with Robin and what he was doing for the poor. And、then there's the famous sheriff of Nottingham, who is in many of the later poems、um, was actually Robin Hood's arch enemy. So, so he's like evil and scheming and very greedy for money, and like the tax collectors of Jesus' time, was quite disliked. Then of course there's Robin's love interest, Maid Marian, who, who again our literary scholars can't quite place as to whether she was the daughter of a noblewoman, a princess, or just another commoner. But we do know that she's perceived as a strong and virtuous character.、Uh, In league with Robin,、um, even though she's from a different sort of social class, and in many versions of the Robin Hood story, they fall in love and elope. More on that later. Okay, so that's for those of you who aren't so familiar with the Robin Hood legend. That's sort of the foundation of this story. Okay, so now I'm going to zoom in on two particular features of Robin Hood. They make him a surprisingly strong Christ archetype, and in some ways can help us have a deeper appreciation of the real historical Christ and how he was perceived. The first feature is that both Robin Hood and Jesus of Nazareth were considered by many to be rebels and outlaws、um, to mainstream society. They were both outspoken in word and deed against the. False authorities of that time. Now, this this idea of false authority or illegitimate authority will become very important when we talk about Jesus as a rebel, because it's like, well, but Jesus was perfect and the Son of God, right? How can he be a rebel? Well, he was a rebel in the sense of him not being in conformity and under obedience of authority that wasn't from God. So, in Jesus' case, let's start with, for example, the scribes and the Pharisees and the old Mosaic law,、um, which many of the Jews of Jesus' time thought was the ultimate authority. But then, because Jesus is above and beyond the law, he is the law himself. He never submitted to it, and hence, by many of the scribes, the lawyers, and the Pharisees, he was considered to be an outlaw, a rebel. He didn't fit in. And also, it's important that Jesus didn't try and hide this fact. You know, he would walk into a synagogue and almost pick a fight. You know, <laughs> choosing to heal a man on a Sabbath and and calling the Pharisees "you brood of vipers" and another pious language <laughs> like that.、Um, I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers, who is an English crime writer among many things, but also happens to be a good friend of C.S. Lewis. She writes this in a sense to have a go at her own. Uh, Civilized, dignified English countryman. <laughs> you know, this is in the middle of the 1950s because that was when the sort of unhealthy taming and domestication of the real historical Jesus、uh, started to creep in.、Uh, she writes, "It has been left to later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently sheared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies." To those who knew him, however, he in no way suggests a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with honest inquirers, and humble before heaven. But he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime, and if he was God, there can be nothing dull about God either. 
Mm. And then, of course, uh, her good friend C.S. Lewis, when he portrayed Christ in the the great Narnia chronicles, uh, would often describe Christ the lion as not a tame lion. You know, he's majestic, he's royal, he's compassionate, but he's not tame. There is a wildness, there is an inherent fire and spontaneity to Christ that couldn't that people just couldn't categorize and tame and control <laughs> in the same way. Um, you know, the sheriff of Nottingham and Prince John couldn't catch and tame Robin Hood either. There is, of course, another way that Jesus was definitely considered a, an outlaw, an outcast, um, was the sense that he was uh, tried and executed as a common criminal by the Romans literally outside the walls of Jerusalem. So very much an outcast you know, sort of figure in that sense. But interestingly, it is from the place of being an outcast, from being the rejected one, you know, you know, scriptures tell us about the stone that was rejected that becomes the cornerstone of the new, the new building, new church, the new kingdom, however you like to see it. There's something about the fact the church is built upon being excluded. Not so much from being excluded from civilized society, but being excluded from the rich, the powerful, the famous, the successful, so that there can be a deeper union uh, with those who are poor, persecuted, marginalized, um, hated by the world. So just like Robin Hood was considered an outlaw to civilized society and to the noblemen and that kind of that tier of society, that very rejection becomes a catalyst for him to become in unity with those who are the oppressed and the poor and the, and the peasants of, of England. In the same way, us Christians can reflect on the fact that our faith is built upon and, and we follow someone who ultimately was rejected from what would be considered um, success and power and glory in the world in favour of those who are poor and oppressed. You know, the Catechism even speaks of the sort of preferential love for the poor and the persecuted, um, not just for practical social justice reasons, but because this is actually a direct imitation of Christ himself, who himself became poor and persecuted. Seen in this light, when we do sort of meet resistance from the world around us, from a culture which is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians and Christian values, just to celebrate and to realize that this is actually healthy and to be expected. Jesus himself tells us that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. And as a measure of whether this persecution that we experience is something truly actually of Christ, or whether it's something we brought onto ourselves because we're acting arrogantly or blindly or judgmentally of others, does this persecution actually expand my heart for the poor? Does it create in me a greater compassion for those who, for whatever reason, are shunned and forgotten? Is the persecution I experience a result of my standing up for the poor, for those who, for whatever reason, cannot stand up for themselves? These are good questions to reflect on. And I think something like the legend of Robin Hood gives us a good illustration of this key gospel truth. Okay, so very smoothly going into our second feature about Robin Hood that I want to focus on is the famous Robin Hood sort of um, philosophy, I guess you can say, of he is the one that robs the rich to feed the poor, which I think, honestly, outside the gospel setting may be considered uh, morally ambiguous. But within the gospel setting, when I describe how Jesus actually does this very thing, you might look at robbing the rich to feed the poor in a new light. Okay, so I've already established that Jesus was, is always on the side of the poor and oppressed. And by extension, that means all Christians, that's where we also stand. But we also know that Jesus, in standing with the poor of the world, he also undermined and challenged and um, reversed or flipped 
the Jewish understanding of what it means to be blessed. So while Jesus, we know, and his followers, as far as we know, <laughs> didn't steal anything, didn't break into you know um, some Pharisee's house to steal shekels to give to you know um, the leper colony down the road, <laughs> um, he did in some ways, in commas, steal what was considered blessedness from the rich. You know, he humbled the exalted and exalted the humbled, per se. You know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You know, there are abundant of um, scriptural references, especially from Luke's gospel that speak of this. Think of, you know, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And, and truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than from someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You know, think of that really, think of that sort of sad parable of the rich man and Lazarus with the rich man sort of, you know, wearing purple linen and fine dining while Lazarus, this poor guy, is, is sitting sort of outside his door with, you know, the dogs licking his wounds, right? So, and then, and then the great reversal happens where Lazarus dies and is carried into the bosom of Abraham while the rich man ends up in shale and there's like an unbreachable gap between blessings and curse. Um, you know, a parable like this would have been scandalous to the learned and the wealthy of the time who, who would have thought that Lazarus, who interestingly is the only character who's named, their for the one who actually has dignity, the common perception was that if you were poor and, and you were sick, you had done something wrong and this was God's punishment for your sin. Whereas if you were rich and integrated and well thought of in society, you would consider yourself blessed and honoured by God. Well, well, Jesus comes and steals that from the rich and gives it to the poor and he continues to do so today. And this is where the character of Robin Hood can leap off just you know the pages of legendary history and into our own spiritual lives. Because the reality is we, dear listeners, the church-going, educated, well-off ones who listen to awesome Catholic podcasts, we may well be the rich that Christ gives us a message of warning to. It is we from whom he may steal away our superficial sense of blessedness. Not that there's anything inherently wrong, of course, from attending Mass and being educated and having some measure of financial stability. But if we start to think that we deserve this, that God owes us this sort of blessing, well, the Gospels and Robin Hood have a sort of warning to give us. Let's reflect whether we are like the nine Jewish lepers in the parable of the ten lepers, who, thinking that Jesus owed them their healing, never returned to thank him. Instead, let's pray for the grace to be the one Samaritan leper who did return to thank Jesus because it was he alone who recognized he didn't deserve Jesus' healing and thus truly knew what it was to be grateful. It was this poor chap that Jesus showered his blessing upon, saying that it was his faith that truly saved him. Let's reflect then, how do you and I measure blessedness? Who are the poor and persecuted ones in my immediate circle of my community, of my family, of my friendship group? Because if the Gospels reveal anything quite clearly, is that Jesus is with them, the excluded ones, the outcast ones, um, more than he is with the in-group, the ones who have it all together. The poor, it seems, are far more likely to embrace and accept the good news of the gospel. It's like God wants to give us a gift, but if our hands are full, they can't actually receive the beautiful gift or they can't unwrap the gift that God gives them. So in the same way, someone who is poor in wealth or in spirit or socially poor um, is able to be open enough to receive and realize that this is the original state of the human person, you know, one who is purely receptive for God for everything. Whereas Jesus was demonstrating and warning the rich that if we find our security and our worth and our identity in power, in knowledge, in honor, in pleasure, um, 
we can we simply objectively cannot receive the gospel because our hands per se are actually full. We might desire and yearn to receive the gospel. We believe every single person does because we're made for God. But unless we are willing voluntarily or involuntarily to let go of the things in our hands, we can never actually receive the gospel. And hence, the poor are in a better position to receive the gospel than the rich. Even as I present this, I'm sort of tempted to qualify and justify this in some way. Let's nuance it a bit to talk about, you know, the social context of his time and. And maybe there's a place for that if I was a proper biblical scholar. But I think I'll leave this point where it is,、um, just to shake us up a little bit, myself included, just to kind of embellish this point of Christ comes to rob the rich to give to the poor, materially poor, yes, but also spiritually,、um, emotionally, socially,、um, you know, insert your own category, sort of thing. If you're enjoying this episode of the Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favorite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on the Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. Okay, so briefly, I want to touch on the character of Maid Marian, so Robin Hood's sort of love interest. Um, it's sort of natural and obvious if I sort of then talk about, oh, you know, Jesus was a very loving person. You know, he treated women well. You know, he, you know, it was, you know, he was quite revolutionary and raised up the dignity of the women around him. You know, like the first people who saw the greatest miracle in human history, you know, the resurrection, was two women.、Um, I won't take that angle. I just want to leave you with this thought, which I thought was kind of cool. Maid Marian is a Mary figure. In the Robin Hood legends, Marian, of course, being a derivative of the name Mary.、Um, in the earliest accounts of the story of Robin Hood, where Maid Marian is mentioned, she actually wasn't、um, Robin's sort of love interest. That sort of became popular more around the Romantic era, you know, kind of eighteenth, nineteenth century.、Um, she was merely a strong, virtuous noblewoman who actually used her power and influence to help the rebels usurp、um, the evil King John and his band of tyrannous followers, like the Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, many accounts even portray her as having entered the convent, or at least, or thinking about entering the convent, and hence emphasise her chastity as one of her great virtues, which of course stands in contrast with other religious orders、um, around that time of Robin Hood as well. Even the English word "maid Marian" sort of echoes with Mary being the handmaid of the Lord. But anyway, I just thought this character of Maid Marian、um, could be a good model and image for us too、um, in our work of collaboration with Christ. Um, in one who, despite the fact that she was wealthy and noble,、um, she chose to humble herself and to stand with the poor and to stand fighting for the poor and、uh, against the illegitimate authorities of the world around her. In the same way that us Christians, despite how well we are perceived in the world, we are called and invited ultimately、uh, to obey and to serve the one true King. So there we go. We've sort of arrived at the well. We have arrived at the end of our Robin Hood themed episode. I hope it was inspiring and and in some ways challenging to help capture a dimension of Christ that we can sometimes lose. You know, when we're bombarded with images of the domesticated, you know, meek and mild Christ. You know, suddenly you throw in a Robin Hood image, and and suddenly Jesus has three dimensions again. Hopefully, in a good sense. Um, the practical program exercise、um, I have for you is really quite broad because it really depends on your unique um, social um, community context. But it's to pray how you can stand in deeper compassionate solidarity with a person or a、uh, a group or even an idea that is otherwise persecuted,、um, rejected by the world, by the majority. 
um, what this looks like for each of us will be very different depending on your stage of life and your age and your means. Um, but I do encourage you to bring this uh, into prayer because I know from lived experience there is something intrinsically important when we are in touch with the poor, the gospel and our faith suddenly make a whole lot more sense and we start to see ourselves differently, rightly um, before God as one who is also lowly and poor empty-handed, which, as I discussed earlier, is important um, in our walk of faith. So I'll leave that proposition to you. Um, Until next time, journey forth, take care, and God bless. 